Hello, this is David. Hey, this is Shiloh. And this is History by the Century. Man, it's good to see you, Dave. How are you? I am doing good. How's it going up in beautiful New York? Oh, it, it is beautiful, Dave. Wow, it's I am really excited to get together again and talk about the 4th century, Dave. We've been talking about the 300s, and this is... What part are we on now, Dave? Well, we are on the third part of the 4th century CE. We've yeah. covered all kinds of stuff, and we got some fun stuff in store for you today. What are we going to talk about, Shiloh? Well, you know, history's full of strange things, uh, strange and interesting things like natural disasters, uh, the way that people migrate from one place to another, and the rise and fall of empires. So we got a little bit of everything, Dave, but I think we were going to talk a little bit about something that happened that affected a lot of people in the north coast of Africa. But taking a little throwback to our last episode, we just finished up talking about the Huns, I remember, right, Dave? That's right. And if you were living back in the 4th century, there was a number of things that you could face. You know, um, you could face the Huns. If you were living in North Africa, you could face a tsunami. You've heard of a Sharknado. Maybe you could have had a Hun-nami. Wow. Like, you mean the ocean just spitting long-headed uh, arrows shooting <laughs> Huns right at you? That sounds horrible, Dave. Okay, so I was exaggerating a little bit about the Huns and the tsunami those were in two very different geographical locations. I guess if you like fled Europe and made it down to the coast and got on a boat and went to North Africa, maybe you could have encountered a Hun and a tsunami in your life, but there's absolutely no historical evidence for that. So okay, in 365, there was a massive earthquake on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Ocean. Now, it was a huge earthquake. Uh, they think that it was an 8.0 on the Richter scale. Just Ooh. to give you an idea of how massive of an earthquake it is, there's evidence that it raised the island about 30 feet. And the way that you know that is because if you look at Crete, you know how like when a wave hits uh, a cliff, like it'll leave like a spot there, like a notch because of erosion? Well, there's a spot like that 30 feet higher than the level of the ocean. And so they think it's from that earthquake that it raised it up. They also think, which I don't know how they get this, but they think that it may have thrown a coral reef out of the water as well. Wow. So anyways, fascinating, man. Yeah. So it starts with an earthquake and I'm going to read to you just a quote. Um, cause we don't really read that many quotes, but, um, it's from the historian Ammianus Marcellanus. And it's interesting because, like, when he what he's describing, like, we automatically know what it was. It's a tsunami. But for the people back then, you know, they didn't really understand what was going on. So they didn't necessarily know, hey, I need to hightail it out of here. But, but listen to what he's talking about. He's talking about, um, uh, this is from the viewpoint of a person in North Africa near Alexandria. He said, slightly after daybreak and heralded by a thick succession... I got the word right this time, uh, of fiercely shaken thunderbolts, the solidity of the whole earth was made to shake and shudder, and the sea was driven away. Its waves were rolled back, and it disappeared, so that the abyss of the depths was uncovered, and many shaped varieties of sea creatures were seen stuck in the slime. The great wastes of those valleys and mountains, which the very creation had dismissed beneath the vast whirlpools, at that moment, as it was given to be believed, looked up at the sun's rays. Many ships then were stranded as if on dry land, and people wandered at will about the paltry remains of the waters to collect fish and the like in their hands. Then the roaring sea, as if insulted by its repulse, rises back in turn, and through the teeming shoals dashed itself violently on the islands and extensive tracts of the mainland. So clearly what he's describing here is the three phases of a tsunami. You have an earthquake, you have the water receding, and you can see the mountains and valleys that were underneath there, and then you have the tsunami. 
which, of course, is not a word from the Mediterranean. It's a Japanese word. And it, Shiloh, do you know where the word tsunami comes from? Yeah, you know, it, that'd be a good time to take a minute to talk about what a tsunami is. I know you mentioned uh, the three phases of a tsunami, but what these people would have seen would have been terrifying. Can I just ask you a question, Dave? Do you think you could have outrun a tsunami? I was doing a little research, and I think when the water first goes down, you might have about 30 minutes sometimes to get okay. out of there. So, you think you got about but once minutes. you, But once you see that wave coming, there's no way you can outrun you're it. Not, you're not outrunning it. Okay, so a tsunami, like you mentioned, is not, um, it's not a word from Alexandria, and it's not a word from the Mediterranean. It's a Japanese word. Su meaning harbor, nami meaning wave. So you're talking about a harbor wave. A tsunami wave can be as high as 100 feet. I'm going to take a quick guess at meters and say that's 75 meters, 70 meters. I don't, I think it would be more like 30. Okay, I know that it's not 30. So all those that are listening <laughs> in a country that is not the United States, 70 meter high wave that's traveling up to 500 miles an hour, or again, to all those <laughs> listening in a country not in the United States, you're talking about 750, 800 kilometers an hour. So no, Dave, you can't outrun a tsunami. Those things are and big and fast. So uh, just I, I Googled it. 100 feet is yeah. 30.48 meters. Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. You're <laughs> I was off by half of a uh, meter there, Shiloh. Okay. Well, you know what? Um, I'm not good at math. <laughs> So, yeah. See, this is why America doesn't go to the metric system, because of oh, people like us. <laughs> I know. It, it would just cause chaos. It would be as bad as a tsunami hitting us. All right. So, yeah. Dave, so, this, speaking was, of, this was in the minds of people for a long time, this tsunami, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. For, for at least about 200 years, there's a record of them having kind of a festival every year. Or I don't know if a festival is the right word, but they remembered it every year that this happened because thousands of people died. I mean, they found ships, like ocean-going vessels, on top of buildings in Alexandria. They found ocean-going vessels two miles in from the ocean. Now, Shiloh, I got a, I got a would you rather. Oh, boy. So would you rather outrun the Huns or outrun a tsunami? Oh, man. Ah. I got to tell you, the Huns really scare me. I almost think that maybe I might have a better chance at trying to outrun that tsunami. I mean, because how, how fast do tsunamis go? Like once you see the wave and it's coming at you. Well, like I said, we mentioned it could travel up to 500 miles an hour. And now that isn't that saying that they all travel that fast. But, uh, you know, a horse doesn't obviously travel that fast, but I feel like with when they start shooting those those arrows at you, those Huns, like we talked about in the last episode, that or the jerky might get me, one or the other. But I had to I had to mention the uh, the Huns jerky just because I like it so much, Dave. But while we're in talking about <laughs> Alexandria, Dave. Oh, can I just mention one more thing before we uh, go on to your thing? Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, that kind of came out mean. I didn't mean to come out mean. I'm sorry about that, but. <laughs> I haven't had, you know, I haven't talked about Rome in five seconds, and so I have to. Um, but you know, they didn't really know who to blame. You know, when oh, something like wow, that happens, yeah. and you're like, yeah. a, a suit. You know, who do you blame? They don't know that there's an earthquake and tectonic plates and stuff like that. And so, you had two groups of people, and this is where they put the blame. So you had the polytheists, the the pagans, and Julian the apostate. Um, who we call Bizarro Constantine, had died two years before this, and they felt like it was the gods punishing them for Julian the Apostate getting killed. Interestingly, the Christians thought that it was God punishing them for Julian, I guess, not getting killed soon enough. So I guess the scientific consensus of the time is, no matter how you look at it, it was Julian's fault. Wow, it always comes back to Julian, doesn't it? Yeah, sorry, that was my footnote to a footnote of last week's footnote or last wow. month's footnote yeah that's man going like you said going back to rome again and now we're going to take a break to hear a word from our sponsor in a world plagued by the huns one man thought his refuge was the sea this summer prepare to see how wrong he was prepare yourself 
for the Hanami. Everybody, everybody run! There's a giant wave full of Huns coming! How big of a wave is it? Uh, it's like at least 100 feet. Well, how much is that in meters? I don't know, like 80 meters? Wait, 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 80 meters? Isn't that like 264 feet? No, 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 that's more like 34 meters. Wait, I'm just trying to figure out like whose feet here we are discussing exactly. And what in the world is a meter anyway? I'm just wondering how fast it's going. Oh, for the love of... Look, it's really big, it's really fast, and it's full of Huns! In a movie, the New York Times is calling, Please don't contact us again, we're definitely not seeing it. And the Washington Post's biggest competitor in the East Belfordshire township of Westchesterville is calling it a footnote to a footnote to a movie's footnote. Hanami. The waves are about to get a lot more stabby, stabby. Hey, just want to send a big shout out and a thanks to our friend Devin down in Mexico. We uh, sent him this recording and he sent us back that awesome commercial. Thanks, Devin. I really wanted to stay in Africa, Dave, speaking of what happened to Alexandria. Well, let's, let's talk about Africa. Yeah, because, you know, I think what happens is is we talk about Alexandria and, and some of these other places there, but we forget about, in general, the, the impressive history of Africa. You know, you, you want to think about how the important events and developments that were taking place as a whole for the whole continent of what we call modern day Africa, they've impacted modern history. So first off, just the name Africa. Dave, we've talked a little bit about this before, how sometimes a name is given by somebody else. So it's a little bit contested yeah. about how Africa got its name, but what, what can you say about, what do you say about how a place gets its name sometimes? Well, a lot of times it's what other people call it. They don't name themselves. Like I was thinking about like the, the Punic War, for example, it was between Rome and Carthage. There was no Punic in there. It was because the Romans thought the Carthaginians were Phoenician. And their word for Phoenician sounded like Punic, so they called it the Punic War. Or you have people like the Quakers. That name was given them by other people, kind of making fun of them. A lot of times, like, you know, kids use nicknames. Uh, sometimes when you're the new guy at work, you might get a nickname that you may not care for, uh, that may stick with you for longer than you care to remember it i'm going to change the subject but yeah it seems like sometimes whole groups of people can get nicknames that just kind of stick right yeah and well africa is no exception when we hear that name it's disputed under where that name came from but it's funny you mention you know the romans or the greeks uh, they used words like africa with a p in there the latin word for africa meaning sunny that's one idea of where it's possible the name Africa came from. But again, this is something that was given to this, this continent from uh, someone else, the Romans, for the, in this instance. But Africa today is now home to more countries than any other continent on the world. It's very diverse culturally. Historically speaking, Africa has been very diverse and had an interesting past. So we've heard some amazing stories from nor the North African coast and places like Egypt and Ethiopia, but we don't have as many written records from places like Central and West Africa. And what's happened is that's led some to think wrongly that the people of Africa were more primitive or they were less developed, but that's simply not the case. There were impressive developments in West Africa, for example. And first and foremost, I wanted to mention the empire of Ghana, so, Dave, have you heard of the Empire of Ghana? I've heard of the country, but I've never heard of the empire. That's a great point, Dave, that you bring up the country of Ghana. We want to be clear uh, that we don't want to confuse the modern-day country of Ghana with the empire of Ghana. They're not even really in the same place. So it's thought that the empire of Ghana started to solidify in the 300s, so in the time that we're talking about, this 4th century. We don't have exact dates and details, but I wanted to bring up how the Empire of Ghana is starting around this time and that it's important to know that because the Empire of Ghana becomes extremely rich, extremely rich with gold. 
So this area is known as a very rich area, and the Empire of Ghana eventually contributes to the rise of the Empire of Mali with world-famous figures like Mansa Musa. You know, the stories about Mansa Musa are, are infamous. He's, he's thought he's to be one of the richest men, one of the richest men who ever lived. Yeah, if not. The, the richest, richest man, man who ever yeah, lived. You're and, that's, feel... and that's quite a bit after this period, though, correct? Right, right. That's quite a bit after. But going back to why we're mentioning the Empire of Ghana is there's a progression of these early kingdoms. These early kingdoms, like the, the Empire of Ghana, lay the foundation for later powerful kingdoms to come that we know about today. So it, it, in a way, it's we we're showing uh, respect and, and paying attention to how some of these kingdoms started, how they formed by looking as far back as we can, what influenced uh, the progression of history. So also in line with that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Bantu people and the Bantu migration. Dave, have you heard about the, the Bantu people in general? They uh, Weren't those the creatures that the uh, sand people rode on in Star Wars? Uh, you know what? I, 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 that sounds familiar. Who the what? No, it's not the Bantu. What is it? That was the Banthas. Oh, that's right. So, the reason we want to talk about the Bantu migration, the Bantu peoples, is because in the fourth century, the Bantu people, uh, this migration is moving through Central into South Africa. So, in the three hundreds and the four hundreds, all the way even into the five hundreds, the Bantu migration is happening. People are moving through Africa. Their influence is growing. This migration was a massive migration of people across Africa, and it happened, you know, close to 1,500 years ago. And this migration took place over a very long period of time. Uh, we could say uh, over a 1,000 years, possibly 1,500 years, the slow-moving migration of people. It wasn't like a, a quick uh, one or two year migration. It was a slow diffusion of people across an area. So it involved the movement of people whose language belonged to the Congo Niger language group. So we're talking about a culture here that shares some similarities. And on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the Germanic tribes. We mentioned that right off the bat in our first episode. We talked about the Germanic people. We talked about Goths invading the Roman Empire in the last episode. We say Germanic because there was a certain shared culture. So when we talk about the Bantu people, we're talking about a group of people that have cultural similarities. And in fact, the Congo-Niger, this language group, the word for human being is Bantu. So that's, that's kind of interesting way to tie that all together. The Bantu migration, it had a huge impact on Africa's economic, cultural, political development. They introduced skills uh, to the communities that they interacted with. They, they affected farming and industry, uh, things like um, forge, blacksmith forging weapons with metal, uh, farm implements. All kinds of different uh, influences came from the Bantu people. And we're talking about things like the Swahili people, the Zulu people, Rwanda, Burundi, the kingdom of Zimbabwe, these all had direct influences from the, the Bantu people. And in a modern-day list of countries that claim a percentage of Bantu peoples, uh, today the list of modern countries include things like the, uh, countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, Tanzania, South Africa, Kenya, Mozambique, Uganda, Malawi, Zimbabwe. A lot of countries have a high percentage of people that are Bantu people. So these modern-day countries, they have cultural similarities that go all the way back to the 4th century and even further. And as the centuries progress from the 300s on, we, we come to have more and more information. So we're looking forward to hearing more about how these, culturals, how these cultures develop and they influence history. But Dave, we have to leave Africa and we have to cross the Arabian Desert. We have to make a stop in India. Oh man, I've been waiting for India. You've been waiting for India? Yeah. Well, Dave, how can you talk about the 300s without mentioning the rise of the Gupta Empire? Man, I think, you know, I think that's kind of my fault because every time you try to talk about India, I just interrupt you and I talk about Rome for like half an hour. <laughs> so you're giving me my, my few minutes of India time right now, giving me a chance I, to talk, talk about, about India. You talk about India and I will try my best 
not to talk about Rome or make dumb jokes. Well, okay, yeah. I won't talk about Rome. So, <laughs> so Dave, you know, it's funny. The first thing I'm going to talk about with the rise of the Gupta Empire in, in India is Rome. So, oh, man, you know, the reason I'm going to mention Rome is because we talked in the last episode about the Battle of Adrianople in 378. So we're talking about the end of the 300s here, 378, Battle of Adrianople, Rome suffers a huge defeat. We talk about in Mesoamerica, one of the powerful empires in modern-day Mexico, they were conquering lands in Central America. But at this very same time in India, the Guptas were solidifying their mighty empire. Now, we want to be clear. The Guptas had been building an empire little by little from the early 300s. But by the 380s, by about the year 380, the great Chandragupta II had emerged, Dave. He's, he's kind of going to be the focus of our, of our rulers that we're going to pick on today. He was one of the greatest Gupta rulers. Now, the Gupta Empire, it was an ancient Indian empire that existed from about the early 300s to about the mid-550s, 540s, around that time. And at its peak, it was about... 319, 360, that, it had a good over 100-year run of just uh, prosperity. And today, people call this time the Golden Age of India. Now, a lot of times when you have a Golden Age, people will look back on it and say, well, that was good times. But in India, they knew it was the Golden Age. They were living well. They had a great, they had, a, they had prosperous times. But India had had an empire that was great before the Guptas. They had the Mauryan Empire. The Mauryan Empire is very famous for some of its rulers, but that empire had ended around 185 BCE. So we're talking about 500 years have passed since this great Mauryan Empire had ended. And now India has, has been living in, uh, in a state of divided small kingdoms. So by the time the, the Guptas start, India had smaller kingdoms that were doing very well for themselves. We remember India was on this, this trade route from east to west. They were at the crossroads. So a lot of these empires, they were doing very well independently. But the Guptas, they were able to unite these kingdoms. The Guptas, they started out as, a, we could say, a small family-run operation. They expanded little by little. They consolidated their power. They united the small uh, kingdoms of India. And in a 380, Chandragupta II began his rule. And in a very short period of time, he ruled from coast to coast. That's a huge, important development for India, to rule from coast to coast. Dave, do you know why? I'll give you a clue. You know, I'm thinking, you know what? It, it has, has to, to do. It has oh, to do with Rome. Yes. <laughs> I am holding myself back. I just, I'm going to mute myself. <laughs> Put yourself on mute, Dave. You know it. So as the, as the Gupta Empire controlled the west coast of India, they had those important, prosperous trading ports where they could trade with Rome. So they could go from China to India to Axum over Can to I Rome. Ask him a question about it. Can you uh, say <laughs> what was that, Dave? Can you say that again? Sorry, it was a dumb joke. Hey, fun fact. You know we're saying "ask" wrong. Like uh, apparently, the original pronunciation of the word "ask" was "axe." Like if you look at uh, like the Canterbury Tales, like Geoffrey Chaucer, like twelve hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, he said "axe." Like even some early translations of the Bible in English say "axe" instead of "ask." You said Jeffrey, well, Jeffrey what, Dave? Uh, Chaucer, you know, in England, Canterbury Tales. He's not from Brooklyn or, or the Bronx? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, I'm thinking of a different guy. Okay. I okay. thought I knew a guy down there, Chauncey, Cha 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 Chaucer. Chaucer. Okay. okay. Anyways, <laughs> now India is controlling these these western west coast ports and they're they're growing very wealthy from trade with Rome. You know, at this time it was said in India that it was raining gold because the empire oh, was wow. so wealthy. They knew it was a golden age. You know, I guess you could say they were the original ones to make it rain gold, you know. So Oh wow. That's how rich they were in India. So this golden age in India produces some brilliant individuals who go on to influence all humanity, Dave. You, me, everybody. 
we are introducing the Guptas now, but we're not going to just finish talking about them now. As much as you love Rome, I'm going to keep talking about India, and we're going to continue talking about them in the next episode. There's a lot to mention. There's just too much to mention right now. And I want to talk a little bit more right now about how the Guptas influenced religion, Dave. So, the Guptas, for the most part, were Hindu, but they were tolerant of other religious beliefs, such as Buddhism. Everyone gets a golden age, Dave. Doesn't that sound like a good cereal? Yeah, golden every- age, Dave? <laughs> I, like I could golden eat that. crisper. <laughs> but yeah, if, I, if you served me a bowl of well, golden age, Dave, right now, I would eat that. Man. I, uh, I could imagine like some like chunky things of granola. Golden Age Dave. I think you should sell <laughs> it at a farmer's market. Okay. I, so I don't, I don't think that that yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. I don't know if I mean every country has a gold like everybody I mean, gets a golden age. Didn't China get a did, golden age? Who was China's well, yeah, golden like, age? Uh like the Han dynasty. And who was know, Romans? So, well when was Romans golden age? Uh like second century, you know, you got the five good emperors, but I don't know if every country, like I mean Canada, did Canada have a golden age child? Oh wow, Dave. They haven't hit it yet. It's still coming. <laughs> okay, anyways, the golden age. Golden age is a time of peace and prosperity. It's like Star Trek, right? You know, isn't there that saying in Star Trek, live long and prosper? Were you a Trekkie Dave? Yeah. Oh man, yeah, you know, but I like that was like from the original series with Spock. Uh, I was more of a like the next generation, you know. But I, I mean, we've had this conversation. You know that I liked Star Trek growing up. I, I mean, you, you know, I really never know. watched Star Trek. Well, I think yeah. I think you spent time with like you had friends. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Golden Age, Dave. Golden Age is when you have the time and the money, the funds to throw it big, lavish sculptures and temples and idols. So it's it's in this time in the Gupta period that these immense state-funded temples and idols to the Hindu gods, they come to define the modern-day visual representations of the Hindu gods. So the Gupta, uh, they funded religious art that kind of sets the standard for our visual image of what the Hindu gods look like. And it's an interesting, Dave. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, can I just have like a little aside here? Like if you've ever been to a museum, like for example, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, uh, in New York City, like you might be surprised at like how much of the art is religious, um, and the reason is before like a few hundred years ago, in general, the only people that could afford art was either religion or the state, and so that's why once you get you know past the Renaissance and stuff like that, like most art is either religious or related to nationalism. Right. Yeah. Or and like a king, for instance. Yeah. And so this is a great example of that. The Gupta Empire, the ones that were running it, those in the official capacity to rule at this time, they were funding a lot of religious art to help people uh, put an image to what they were worshiping. So to me, it's an interesting time because in the 300s, the Guptas are defining little by little the Hindu gods. And in Rome, going back to Rome, Around the same time, the cross is starting to become used as a Christian symbol. And not much earlier, not much earlier than the time we're talking about, is when the modern image of Buddha really comes into existence. There was a time when the Buddha did not have an image. It was more it was more of a symbol. But the Buddha well, really comes... What, oh, did, what did they put in the front of Chinese restaurants? Well, you know, Dave... Um, I'm not sure, you know, in the in the early <laughs> hundred that was bad. That was that we're we're offending every demographic in this. We need. I just I'm going to stop making jokes right now. Yeah. You know how you were saying that you were hoping that people would like you more on the podcast. That if you keep going that way, <laughs> you, we're going to have a problem here. So, going back to the 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 point here is that this time period we're talking the 200s to 300s is religion is starting to use imagery very extensively and it's it's imagery that affects us now down to our time so very interesting and i'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here dave we're full of tangents on this show but there was a german tangents on tangents we have tangents for our tangents but there was a german writer carl jaspers and he came up with the idea of a thing called the axial age and this term is very interesting to me because he was basically referring to the time when people 
define, they set the foundations of their belief systems, this axial age. Now, if you look it up, it's, it's a little bit broader than what I'm going to narrow it down to, but I'm going to focus on the 500s and the 400s BCE. So we're looking at close to 800 years before the time of the Guptas, before the time of the cross coming into existence or being used in the Roman Empire. We're talking about the, the 500s and the 400s BCE. And in this short period of time, I found it fascinating that the, the second temple was being rebuilt in Jerusalem for Judaism. We see that this, at that same time, the Buddha was spreading his teachings. At the same time, Confucius was active in China. And at the very end of that, Socrates was on the scene in Athens. So we see a very influential time. And it's a little broader than what I've just described, but it's a term called the Axial Age. I'm bringing this up because I feel like the 300s, became a very uh, important time in the progression of religion. They introduced a visual element for personal worship of the gods, and we see how the government was very much involved in that. So we see a very strong tie with government and religion. And so I know I went off on a tangent there, but the influence of the Guptas on the visual representation of the Hindu gods, is it's huge. And going back to Chandragupta, just real quick, real quick, a brief nod to the Indian Golden Age and the the symbol of their advanced ability to produce just quality work is the pillar at Delhi. So this is a it's an interesting testament to the the Gupta Empire. We're gonna put a picture up on our Instagram, Dave. I'll give you that picture at History by the Century. Yeah, that's right. It's a 1,600-year-old iron pillar with an inscription by Chandragupta, and it's a testament to the great abilities and the technologies of this, this Indian empire. The reason it's so impressive, it's a 1,600-year-old iron pillar that has not rusted. So these Well, people, how did they keep it from rusting? These people built stuff to last, Dave. So, you know, I give them a lot of credit. And there's so much to talk about in the way of science and literature, but we're going to continue with that in the next episode. Right now, Dave, we're going to your hometown or your home country. Or we're we're going to talk about Texas? We're talking about, wait, <laughs> Texas? You know what's funny? Like I was talking to my, my wife the other day about... um. Uh, like just like why people in Texas know so much about Texas history. We it, we take a year seventh grade history class is Texas history. So think about this. Like we take a year of world history and a year of Texas history. So that means we spend as much time learning about the history of the entire world for thousands of years as for like the last hundred and fifty years of one state and one country. Well, you know, Texas was its own country, so, uh, you know... For, for a little bit, just a little bit. Did Texas yeah. have a golden age, Dave? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, no, we're talking about your other homeland, Dave. Britannia. I like how neither of us, like, tried to answer that question. It just, it's, it's like, let's just, let's stay away from this. So, we're, yeah, we're going to Britannia, Dave. We want to focus on the latter half of the fourth century, the 350 to the 400 range. So the reason that we want to talk about it is because at this time, Britain is thoroughly Roman, Dave. It's important to realize that every part of Britain has that, ro well, for the most part, you know, there's are some outlying areas of Britain that don't have that Roman influence, but the part that is Roman is thoroughly Roman. They believe, they enjoy the luxuries that Rome has to offer. What's interesting is that Britain is very hard to de defend against other invading or raiding groups. So it requires a pretty substantial military force there, but it's not a huge money producer. You know, you think about Spain, Hispania at this time, they were producing Silver. a lot and they didn't require much defense. So, you know, it was kind of like a little cash cow over there. Not so much in Britain. Britain required some defenses there. And what I think is interesting about Britain is it was kind of like a farmer's market, you know, Britain kind of had its little <laughs> thing going on. It was like, man, they produced some really cool stuff. It was internal, but it was thoroughly Roman. That's the point. But what's going to happen is 
that Rome is going to leave Britain. And then, you know, it's really going to get crazy in Britain. But what yeah, I want to mention... You don't want to be at a farmer's market when the police present leaves. Yeah, right? I mean, you think about it. All of a sudden, some vigilantes are running down, uh, running up and down the streets, stealing <laughs> the homemade bars of soap and the honey. You know, it's like nobody wants that. A soap fight that. ensues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so funny shaped carrots and cucumber. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so yeah, uh, the pickles. Those pi- who's gonna Who's gonna take care of the pickles? Artisan so, pip- pickles. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, the point is, is that Rome is going to leave Britain, and one of the misconceptions that comes out is that as soon as Rome leaves in in the early 400s, the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes come in and just take over and they ravage everything. But in the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the misconceptions there, that that's not exactly what happened. So just uh, just kind of giving that as a teaser for the next episode, at this point in Britain, they're thoroughly Roman, and they are enjoying all the luxuries of Rome, but that is about to change. There is a, there is a calm before the storm that is on, on the horizon. Leaving from Britain, though, Dave, where are we going to next? I think we're going to go to a little segment that we oh. have been talking about doing Man, for quite I'm ex- some time. I'm so excited to do this segment. We've probably recorded this segment now at least two or three times and had my computer fail. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what, we got practice, so that's yeah. good. Yeah. But <laughs> so if you don't do a good job, Dave, there's no excuse. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. A lot of pressure. So we're doing a little segment that we might include in some future episodes. It may even be little standalone episodes. It's going to be a little different because it's not necessarily going to focus on one century. And the segment is kind of an ode to an old radio show by Paul Harvey I used to listen to when I was a kid. But our little segment is called, Who in the World Are You Talking About? Now, in this segment, one of us is going to tell a story about a person, a place, a thing, an event. And it could be from any point in history. It might be from the 4th century but it could be from 2000 BCE. It could be from last week. And you, the listener, are going to try to guess who in the world I'm talking about, including Shiloh. Or if he's doing it, of course, it'll be me. So this first little segment is about a sports celebrity who gets himself into some trouble, winds up in jail, causes a riot, leading a politician to send in the federal troops. Shiloh, are you ready? Dave, who in the world are you talking about? (laughs) Nice. Okay, so we have a sports celebrity who gets himself in trouble. He breaks the law, and he gets thrown into jail. And so people kind of go nuts. They don't really care what he did they just care that he's going to miss game day. I was trying to think of of maybe an equivalent. Like, who was that really popular uh, quarterback for the uh, Patriots a few years ago that used to win all those uh, Super Bowls? You know, um, I believe that would be uh, Tom Brady, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you know your sports better than I do, Shiloh. So, like, imagine, like, what would happen, like, up in, in New England, like in Boston, if if Tom Brady got thrown into jail, like, a couple days before the Super Bowl? Like, what would happen in that general part of the country? Oh, man, I can only imagine the kind of chaos that would happen. Yeah, and so in this case, people went nuts. People didn't really care what he had did or what he had done. Did, done? They didn't care what... Man, you'd think after doing this a couple times I would get it right. But they didn't care what he had done. They just cared that he was going to miss the big game and so they rioted and in the course of the riot they killed a public official now this was bad but what was really bad is this public official had gotten his job because of his ties to a politician who we are going to call harry now harry wasn't just any politician he was the head honcho he was el presidente he was in charge of the entire country And so he said, you know what, and I'm paraphrasing here, you want your game, you want your sports star, that's fine, you can have it, but I'm going to send in the troops. And he gave the order to send in the troops on the next game day, lock the doors to the stadium, 
and kill every man, woman, and child inside the stadium. Now, Shiloh, I don't know if you've ever sent like a text message or an email and immediately regretted it. Has that ever happened to you? Um, yeah, almost on a daily basis. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, but like once you send it out there, there's nothing you can do. Like you can't get it back. And so Harry, once he gave the order, he, he almost immediately knew he'd made a huge mistake. He'd lost his temper. He sent a second order camp countermanding the first order. And he said, you know what? Don't go in there. And like what happens many times, the second order didn't go through. And so the troops went in, they locked the doors to the stadium, and they killed every man, woman, and child inside the stadium. Wow. And that so amazing. you could imagine like how terrifying that would be. And it wasn't like there was a guy walking around with a clipboard keeping track, but the low estimates, the low estimates are about 7,000 people died. The high estimates are about double that. I think we've all been in stadiums with about that many people, like maybe six, 7,000 people. You could, you could imagine how terrifying that would be to see troops come in, lock the doors and just start firing. And it was a big deal. And Harry knew that it was a big deal. He didn't know what to do, but if anybody in his situation knew that they were kind of done for, because I mean, if, if you're in a democratic country, you might get impeached. Um, if you're in an autocratic country, you, you might get killed. And so Harry didn't know what to do. But the next Sunday, he decided he was going to go to Mass because he considered himself a good Christian. Interestingly enough, when he got to the church, the local bishop wouldn't let him in. He said, no, you've done something horrible. Uh, you cannot attend communion until you have a, um, repented. Now, you would think if you had just killed 7,000 people, what's one more? What's 7,001? But apparently, Harry was a bit of a true believer. He knew that he'd done something wrong, and he genuinely thought that his eternal salvation was in jeopardy. So for the next few months, he he tried to repent. You know, he uh, he wore common clothes. He didn't dress like the ruler of a country. And after several months of doing this and praying and begging, the bishop said to him, hey, you know what? You've been forgiven. It was Christmas Day. He said, you can attend Mass. You can attend Communion. Now, this would have been an interesting story and, and also a horrific story. But what happened next is really what changed the world. Now, we don't know if it's a coincidence. Uh, we don't know if it was due to guilt. Um, it's possible that a lot of these events have been changed over time. It may have even been a backroom deal with the bishop. But over the course of the next two years, Harry enacted a series of laws that took away religious freedom. Now, if this had happened in any country, it would have been a big deal. But in this country, it was an even bigger deal. And that's because Harry was in charge of the most powerful nation on the earth. Now, I'm calling this ruler Harry, and you might be thinking in your head that that's probably short for Harold, H-A-R-R-Y, but I'm actually giving you his title, Harry, H-A-I-R-Y, like somebody with a lot of hair, because back then, people had three names. They had a first name, they had a family name, and then they had something called a cognomen. Now, a cognomen was a nickname that was given to your family. We talked about nicknames earlier. A cognomen was a nickname for your entire family. And it just so happened that the first ruler of this country had the cognomen Harry, or in Latin, Caesar. Who would have thought 
that one sports celebrity, one chariot racer, would get thrown in jail and lead to a massacre at the Hippodrome in Thessalonica. This would lead to the Caesar, Emperor Theodosius, being refused admittance to church by the bishop, a man by the name of St. Ambrose, or the Bishop of Milan. The Bishop of Milan, Ambrose. Wow. Now, in the next two years, Theodosius would go on to make a series of edicts outlawing paganism and making Christianity the state religion of Rome. And this all happened in the last few years of the 4th century CE. Now, Shiloh, that is who in the world I am talking about. Emperor Theodosius, as well as the Bishop of Milan. Wow. Man, that is fascinating, Dave. Thank you. That was a that was a great new segment to start. Who in the world? Can you tell me more about this B- Bishop of Milan? I mean, he sounds like a fascinating person. Well, you know, I was just about to do that. Now, in the 1990s, a popular film came out that included an older Scottish man. And this man claimed that there was a group of five people that secretly pulled the strings of power and ruled the world. Those five people were, in no particular order, the Queen, the Vatican, the Gettys, the Rothschilds, and, of course, Colonel Sanders. Was there a 4th century colonel with his wee beady eyes pulling the strings of power and putting a chemical in the chicken that makes you crave it fortnightly? I like to think that there was. I like to think that that man was Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. A so man playing G. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was going off on a rant that, there. No, no, that. Tell me more. What? So what? So, tell me. Finish that. A man playing geopolitical chess, where the bishop was the most powerful player, and every other player on the board was a pawn. Wow, man! I, I worked on that for a while. Sorry, I was trying to be dramatic. Did it work? Oh man, I you you just reeled me right in. I mean, that was uh, I was. I was just enthralled, fascinated. And the, that last chess reference, too, I, I think I, we even have had some experience where that last bishop... I know. We, we're always playing that chess app, and I lose, like, pretty much frequently. <laughs> pretty much so, pretty much frequently. That sounds funny. Yeah, so a lot of people, like um, the Bishop of Milan, if you've never heard of him, uh, a man by the name of Ambrose, uh, or St. Ambrose, is one of the most influential people in all of history. And that's because he basically took the the infant Catholic Church and took them from being kind of not that big a deal to being maybe a little bit more powerful than the state. Wow. And Shiloh, I was wondering, would you like to tell the story of like where he came from or would you like to me to give that little intro there? Well, you know, I, I'd like to hear your, your uh, story on where he came from. I do find it really fascinating his story but i think you know it a little better than i do however just as a precursor with people that know uh catholicism ambrose is considered one of the four doctors of the church and just my two cents on this is is that uh you know i i was reading about ambrose quite a while ago and when i read that he was one of the four doctors of the church i said well this guy he must have been really good at medicine he could help you out if you had a cold or maybe you broke your arm (laughs) so i know you're laughing maybe there's other people out there that are laughing at me too but maybe there's those few people that are like yeah shiloh i mean he was a doctor of the church so you know he must have known about how to give you penicillin or something. I don't know if penicillin existed back then. This is history by the century. We're in the 300s. We haven't got to penicillin yet. So, <laughs> no, he wasn't doctor, as in, like, I'm going to cure you of your ails. Doctor comes from the Latin word teacher. So, the Catholic Church views Ambrose as one of the four teachers of the church. So, that's kind of my intro into his status now. But tell us about how he started. 
Well, it might help to kind of understand, set the stage for what was going on in Rome at this time. Now, we talked about, like, in Diocletian's time in a previous episode, you know, you have the Tetrarchy. You had rule by four. Now, it kind of went back and forth over the years, but at this point, you have rule by three. You have three emperors, and you have Rome split into three parts. You have the east with Theodosius. You have the west with Gratian. And in the middle, you have Italy with a guy by the name of Valentinian. And that is where Ambrose lives. The capital is in Milan. Ambrose is in Milan. And so you have it split into three. And also, ideologically, Christianity is split into two. You've got two main groups. You've got the Arians and you've got the Nicaeans. And to give like the short one sentence oversimplification, the Nicaeans believed in the Council of Nicaea, that basically God and Jesus were the same. The Arians believed that they were two separate people. Okay, that's the short history by the century, one paragraph summary of what is going on. And so in Milan, where you have Ambrose, Ambrose was a political leader. He was a prefect. So he was not a bishop. He was not a priest. He was just basically like a very powerful mayor. And something happened. The bishop died and people went nuts because the Arians wanted an Arian bishop. The Nicaeans wanted a Nicaean bishop, and everybody was basically rioting and going nuts. And so Ambrose, who's the prefect, comes in to kind of settle everybody down, and everybody likes him and respects him uh, because, well, for one, he is a Nicaean, so of course the Nicaeans like him, but he treats the Arians really well. And so somebody throws out the idea, hey, why don't we make Ambrose the bishop of Milan? And the first person to legitimately object is Ambrose. And that's because he was not a priest. And they're like, well, hey, that's that's not a big deal. And so he threw out his second objection. And he's like, hey, I'm not even baptized. At which point somebody was like, why are you not baptized? And he's like, because I believe because in science. I believe in science. <laughs> so you're telling me that Ambrose got made a bishop but he wasn't a Christian, and he uh, he was trying. He was a political figure. Yeah, and Christian. so wow. yeah, you know, if I, if you put it in modern day terms, it would be kind of like if the Pope died, and they made the mayor of Rome. They made Tom pope. Brady the uh, Pope, <laughs> right? Yeah. He was like, and, I I'm not. Yeah, I was a chariot and, racer that got arrested. Now they're making. Yeah. And so it was fairly common back then for people to not get, like, uh, you know, like Constantine's deathbed baptism. Like, a lot of people did that just because they kind of wanted to do whatever they wanted to do and then just, you know, get their one get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, But so anyways, they baptize him real quick. They make him the bishop. And if that was the end of the story, it would be kind of an interesting story, like somebody who's not baptized and not a priest becoming the bishop. But from that point on he kind of gets into several situations where he gets into a staring contest with the most powerful person in the nation and wins. And, you know, we've we've talked many times about, like, especially in Rome, like, if the emperor didn't like somebody, like, what could they do to them? Uh, Well, you know, if the emperor doesn't like you, you're dead. Yeah. Yeah. So to stand up to the emperor and survive, like, that's kind of a big deal. But to, like, you know win get your get your way it's it's an even bigger deal and so just a few little examples of that so shortly after he becomes bishop valentinian the emperor where he lives dies he apparently died of like an anger stroke he was yelling at somebody he was screaming he was losing his temper had a stroke and died now it's not funny if somebody dies from a stroke while losing their temper but if you're the person getting yelled at It might be a little it, funny. Yeah, if you're the person getting yelled at, especially if you're so you're a, I'm gonna say it, if you're a Germanic <laughs> tribesman, because I believe that's Which, who he was. Yelling I think at that's who was. Yeah, he, he was yelling well, at some Germanic peoples. You know that he they like had to he, laugh a little. He basically never ever took like envoys or or uh, diplomats from other country, and then like the one time he did, he dies. Uh, yeah. But so he dies, and his four year old son is made the emperor. So you've got a power vacuum. And who steps in to fill that vacuum? 
the Bishop of Milan. And also his mom, but the Bishop of Milan. And so he's kind of pulling some strings there. And then over in the Western area, you've got Gratian, who's like a teenager, young guy. And he's also a Nicene, so he's looking to the bishop for advice. And the bishop tells him, well, hey, you know what you should do is um, you can't really make paganism illegal, but why don't you defund it? Which, I mean, that's a political move people do today. Like, if you can't make something illegal, you can just stop paying for it. And so he defunded polytheism. He even took the altar of victory out of the Senate house, uh, which is the goddess Nike. And they were like, hey, you can't take this out. And he's like, hey, just do it. And that's oh, wow. where we actually know. I, I just he didn't really say that. But so <laughs> but it was kind of a big deal. And the reason it was a big deal is because this was his religion. He was the emperor. So he was the Pontifex Maximus. He was the high priest. And they brought that up. They're like, you can't defund us because you are the Pontifex Maximus. And so. Gratian goes to the bishop and say, hey, what am I going to do? And Ambrose is like, well, you just need to step down. You need to give up the title Pontifex Maximus. And so for the first time in hundreds of years, the head of state is no longer the head of religion. He just gave away a huge chunk of his power to somebody else. Fun fact, do you know who the current Pontifex Maximus is? Um, tell me, Dave. It's the Pope. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he gave that away. So like if you're keeping track, the score is bishop one, state zero. Uh, and there was a ton of other things. Just like real quick rundown of a couple of them. Justina, the mother of the empress or the mother of the emperor, she wanted to have just one Aryan church that she could go to because there weren't any. And the bishop told her no. Like she tried to kind of have like a sit-in in one of them and her his people went in and remember like Occupy Wall Street? They had like Occupy the Church and Justina backed down. It was like Bishop wow. Two. You they know, were just state zero. Out there eating some beans on an open fire. Occupy the church, yeah. Yeah. That's, and then that's fascinating. We're getting into a general by the name of Maximus in England, in Britannia. And I just want to say, like, we've talked about names here, but like why why does Maximus not become like a common name now? Because it was a really cool name. And it was like kind of common back in Roman times. It seems like every hundred years you had like a general named Maximus who tried to take over the empire. Yeah, Maximus was a pretty cool name. Um, it, just, it means it was, the greatest. Yeah, I, I didn't pick that for one of my kids' names because um, it was a little too common, actually. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, I mean, well, there everybody you go. got named Maximus. Fritigern's pretty cool, man. Yeah, but so Maximus comes down there, he deposes Gratian, unfortunately, kills him, and he's coming for the Middle Empire. And so you've got Maximus, a general, at the head of an army, he's coming for Italy, and who do you think that Justina and her young son send to meet this army? Do they send another army? Do they send a general? Do they send a diplomat? No, they send the bishop. Ambrose goes up there, and he basically stalls for time. He tricks him. He's like, when he'd ask him a question, he'd be like, oh, I don't have authority to ask that. And, you know, I have to go back and, and get permission. And in the meantime, they reinforce the Alps. Ambrose goes back, and Maximus can't do anything. And so for a few years, they had this uneasy peace between the three sections of the empire. You got Maximus in one corner, You've got Valentinian and Ambrose down in Italy, and over in the east you have Theodosius. So they had a bit of a stalemate. Uh, you know, it was some people might even call it a Mexican. Shiloh, can I can I say Mexican standoff? Dave, you're in Italy right now. You can't. Say... All right, you know, hold on. Let me pull my let me pull up my dictionary. All right, hold on. So Mexican standoff. It's considered a hold. Here we said it, it's officially considered a stalemate. Of a confrontation of two or more people where no side can win. Perdona mi amigo porque no entienden la cultura. Es muy ofensivo. Yeah, Dave, I guess you can use it right now if you want, I guess. Okay, cool. So they had a bit of a Mexican standoff, a three-way standoff. Nobody could really attack the other one and get the whole pie, all of Rome. If Emperor A attacks Emperor B, well, B and C team up on Emperor A, and who knows, maybe the Parthians or the Sassanids invade from the other side. There's nothing anybody can do. 
until our old friend dies. You know who I'm talking about, Shiloh. Um, Actually, maybe you don't know who I'm talking about. We talked about him in the first part of the 4th century when he was just a fetus. A fetus, yeah. That's right. Over in Persia, the Sassanid king, Shapur II, finally dies. He had just reigned for 70 years. That's a his long son time. comes to power. Yeah, his son comes to power. Shapur III, he knows that he's not very powerful, so he makes a deal with Theodosius. They have a peace treaty. And so Theodosius can has the power to go and attack and get all of Rome. But Maximus knows this too. So what does he do? He attacks Italy. He goes for it. And what's interesting is the imperial court fled over to Theodosius. But you know who stayed behind? The, the bishop of bishop Milan. Of Milan. <laughs> Which, okay. you know, you have to hand it to him because he's like, you know what? You can't kill me. Like, I mean, for like... This is the guy he tricked five years earlier, prevented him from, you know, invading Italy. And then he's like, no, you can't kill me. And he didn't. He was that powerful that he couldn't kill him. But, I mean, it just, stuff like this happened again and again. He got into, I counted, I think, seven showdowns between Maximus, Gratian, uh, the Empress Justina, then later Theodosius with the famous uh, incident involving the church um, and the uh, the massacre in Thessalonica. And he was like the kingmaker. Everybody looked to him. Um, when they had that stalemate, they even had uh, Maximus and Theodosius basically tried to outdo themselves to be the bigger Nicene. So they persecuted the Arian sect and promoted the Nicene sect in an attempt to impress him because they felt like that was the only way that they could seize power was through the bishop. So a really fascinating character. He changed the world basically because he took the Catholic Church from not being a big deal to being possibly bigger than the state. Wow. That is some fascinating information about the Bishop of Milan. Yeah, so I think that's it. We're done. Yeah, the you know what? we're going to wrap up the 4th the, uh, century, Dave. But real quick, I wanted to finish on a real quick trivia question, Dave, that's going to lead us into a little bit about what's coming up in the next episode. We've talked oh, a lot about we've, we've talked a lot about religion, Dave, but wrapping it up, we talked about India. We talked about Theodosius, the Bishop of Milan. Can you tell me when? the Roman Empire officially adopted Christianity as a state religion, Dave? Yeah, it was in uh, 392, correct? Um, you know, maybe we'll have to Am go I wrong? I, you know, I'm looking at <laughs> my notes, and I'm reading that uh, 380 was the Edict of Thessalonica. So... The Roman yeah. Empire became it a was Christian in a state. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you're, you're absolutely correct. But it was a series of edicts, and it wasn't until, I believe, 391 or 392 where they officially outlawed paganism. Okay. And so you know it kind of like I set it in it stone. Is, it wasn't like there a, was one thing. It was a few things. Okay. So that's what's going to lead me to my next question, Dave. This is the big moneymaker. I feel like Rome was a little like they had to adopt Christianity little by little in steps. So yeah. we had we had the edict of Thessalonica. You had the the uh, there was more edicts that that were came, but the real question is, who was the first national state? What was the first government apparatus or state to adopt Christianity? Oh, I know this. I, b okay. I believe it was actually Armenia. Correct. You got it. What was the second, Dave? Oh man, I'm gonna guess Rome because that's what we're talking about. Well, you know, that's a really great guess. Some people say it's not really superficial, but right next to Armenia is the country of Georgia, not oh, Georgia. Oh, that's right. In the United States. right. Not Georgia, but not Georgia. Not Georgia, but yeah. Georgia. No, not, not Georgia, <laughs> but Georgia. And then the third, this is what, this is for all the money right here, Dave. Yes. The third nation to adopt Christianity. Let me give you a hint. It's not Rome. We mentioned them one time in the podcast this this episode. Really? Man, I have yes. no idea who it is. We are going to talk about in the next episode the kingdom of Axum, Dave. The kingdom of Axum. So that's what's really? coming up. 
We're going to talk about the kingdom of Axum, the third nation to adopt Christianity. In fact, they were putting a cross on their coinage in the 320s and the 330s. So they adopted Christianity pretty early. Very interesting story. And the kingdom of Axum is very important in the whole consideration of trade with the Roman Empire. So also, what to look forward to, Dave, we are going to talk about the fall of Rome, one of the biggest events in, you know, we could say thousands of years, the fall of Rome. Anything else you want to mention that we're going to talk about next episode, Dave? You know, with the, um, I've been so busy with the fourth century, I can't even think about the fifth century yet, but I do know a few little things to look forward to with our little segment um, who in the world are you talking about? A couple fun little future mini episodes to look forward to are the worst fire chief in all of history mm. and Al, the man who saved the world. Wow, those that, that's intriguing. Well, Dave, we're going to talk about the fall of Rome. We're going to talk about the Axum Empire. We're going to talk about what happens to Britain when the powerful central government that maintains order just decides to pack up and leave overnight. And all of a sudden you have to say, who's going to keep an eye on the farmer's market? And Dave, who does Cookie Monster have to thank for helping keep track of his cookies? That's all in the next episode, Dave. We have a lot of people to thank. We appreciate all the people that have written in and uh, rated the podcast and also those from countries all over the world that have listened. It is absolutely becoming an obsession, but kind of a fun little thing that me and Dave talk about all the time. You there know, was a pretty... He'll text there was a me pretty, in the middle of the night and oh, say, sorry. Canada. No, I mean, he'll say Canada downloaded an episode. So whoever you are in Canada, it is the golden age. Don't let Dave, don't let Dave say anything <laughs> bad about Canada. We love you. Was, eh? was a, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to talk. <laughs> no, there was a pretty awesome review. I liked it on a, on an Apple podcast. It said um, that you make my hour and 15 minute oh. commute feel like 45 minutes. <laughs> okay. So awesome. I'm going to take, why is it that every person that does a podcast says, Hey, you know, I'm not very good at math. It's because you're talking on a microphone and it, obviously, but didn't we figure this out? They said that 40% less hour, time. Yeah. Their hour and 15 commute felt like more like 45 minutes and we figured it out. It was, a, it was a, our podcast is guaranteed to reduce your commute time by 40%. If you listen to us, <laughs> yeah, maybe we can also reduce your day by 40%. <laughs> but uh, in reality, we have had, we just really appreciate everyone listening. It's been a great fun thing that me and Dave look forward to doing. And uh, I think that's a wrap, Dave. This is history by the century. All right. Thank you. Shadow.